Recorded live in downtown Newtown, this is Rancho Notorious, a podcast about movies and other cool stuff. You can find this and all the other episodes of the show at funeralsandsnakes.net forward slash Rancho Notorious. everybody to season three episode number five of rancho notorious my name is dan slevin and here with me in wellington new zealand it's kaylee carruthers hi good to have you here glad you could spare the time thanks it's my uh one night that i'm not watching movies at nzf so i feel a bit lost (laughs) out of place well, but I'll power through. Indeed. The New Zealand International Film Festival, that's what NZIF stands for, if you're just joining us for the first time. Uh, it rolls on and out of Auckland, uh, but still on in Wellington uh, for a few more days. Uh, I haven't had my uh, invitation to the closing night party. I don't know if that's... Has, mm. that, has that gone out? No? Um. Uh, or am I, uh, am I now being blacklisted from that as well as from writing program notes? <laughs> I don't know. I, okay. don't, I don't deal with the list. <laughs> Um, it's also it's on in Dunedin at the moment. Yes, and launches in Christchurch um, as you listeners are listening. Yeah. So if you're in Christchurch, get yourself to the cinema. And Nelson next week. And Nelson is sorry. No, Nelson is, is has started. Oh, Nelson Nelson's started. Yeah, Nelson launched last night. <laughs> I know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole country is going film festival crazy. Basically, yeah. uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Um, oh, and we should add that Melbourne and our Melbourne listeners they're in the middle of their film festival hmm. as well Myth hmm. which is Just, that's my favourite festival like <laughs> acronym just want to say it indeed and, and I was having a look at their programme today and you know it's interesting that two festivals going in the same hemisphere simultaneously can have such different programmes mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of stuff in that Melbourne programme that's not here and vice versa so um, yeah it's a uh, festivals everywhere but of course the juggernaut of multiplex commercial cinema continues Tom Cruise coming up hard on the heels of all the festivals everywhere with another contender for uh, what may well be the biggest blockbuster in a year that's been breaking records all year Universal Studios have cracked over well over a billion dollars of domestic box office in the states just staggering amounts of money being spent on the biggest films um at the moment um and of course woody allen 79 years old still putting out a film every year um and he is refusing to be left out as well so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about uh, his latest film as well and speaking of toms we have a special guest in studio we do i've got to that that's my next paragraph <laughs> I know you're always going to ignore him. Is he going to make him come here and sit in the corner? What a practical joke that would be. You don't get dinner, and then we don't talk to you. We would never do that. So, Tom Webb. Hello. Welcome. <clears throat> Thank you. Tom Webb, you're from the United Kingdom. I know. Don't hold it against me, please. No, uh, the, it's, it's fantastic. And, of course, whenever anybody comes to New Zealand and settles here from, uh, from overseas, the first question we have to ask is, so what do you think about New Zealand then? It's all right, isn't it? Good. That's uh... <laughs> that is great. Um, we were talking in the car on the way here. Kelly gave me a lift, and it's Wellington's beautiful. Um, it's small, but do you know my favourite thing is that in the evening uh, at sunset, 
it's actually you can actually see the sky you can actually see the blueness in london it's just this horrible orange gray glow so thank you for having me yeah if you've got if you've got your special windproof glasses on yeah. you can you can keep your eyes open and still <laughs> and still see all of that stuff it's it's fantastic um and today we had i mean this is really dull for non-wellingtonians probably dull for a lot of wellingtonians too but you know we had ba basically horizontal freezing driving mm. rain for the first half of the mm. day and then it blew through and it was a beautiful blue sky for the rest for the rest of the day uh, you know, just and then the winds came back and then the winds came back exactly now uh in other uh domestic rancho notorious news uh i know that all of you listeners think that uh the way the show works is that we all sit around a campfire you know, it's like a western, like this western-themed show that we have. Um, but in fact, we are now in the 20th century because uh, the Rancho Notorious Landlord has put a heat pump in. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Just just as winter ebbs, it's <laughs> ebbs away, yes. we've, we've got, uh, you know, genuine heat. And in the, in the studio here, to give you a, a picture, we have a heater. Not, shaped like not a, on no it's not on but yeah. it looks like a toaster so imagine us sitting around a toaster rather than a that's wire. true that's true and <laughs> uh, and um i know that it's uh, lots of you are very keen on uh updates on uh, about the rancho notorious kitten mm -hmm. arthur who is not very kitteny anymore he's turning into a bit of a bruiser and um He's too naughty to have here in the studio while um, while we're actually working. So again, if you hear him crying outside, um, try I think not he's to feel... just on a rampage on his own out there. He didn't even really no, that's true. Today he's that's just true. like, I'm just gonna. He's mm. he's a home wrecker. There's, <laughs> no, there's no question but about that. But the cutest that. home wrecker. Yeah, Aww. Tom. Why have you come to New Zealand? Is it the cinema culture that we have here? Is it the climate? Is it uh, you know when you could have you could have stayed in the the <coughs> metro metropolitan oasis paradise of London? It was purely for this um, podcast recording, right? Yeah. Well, that's the right answer, <laughs> and it was, it was a good job you, you arrived just in time. <coughs> I did. I got here. Just, no, uh, the the short answer is love. Uh, you know, I followed my partner over here uh, because the cruel UK government wouldn't give her a visa. But now I'm here. I'm part of the film world again from, you know, it was uh, a seamless slip because we have this incredible universality. Anyone that's involved in film can easily seamlessly slip into another part of the world. Well, you know, you just start talking about aspect ratios and frame rates yeah. and... Um Dolby Atmos and, you know... You oh, don't talk to me about Atmos <laughs> this week. Don't talk to me about Atmos. <laughs> but you know, it is it's it is a it's a universal language, isn't it? We were we were just um having a, a chat before we came to air and about Ozu. Ozu. Ozu Oh, is it Ozu? <laughs> is that official? <laughs> yeah. Oh my I god, I feel Ozu. so chastened now by I'm I've been corrected by somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> and and the, you know, one of the reasons I know that you know what you're talking about is because you when you were living in London, you were working for the British Film Institute, right? Or, I was, yeah. What, what, what they know, what yeah. known as the BFI, the and everybody BFI. knows what that means. Yeah. So, what, what was that like? Tell me a bit about. Uh, it was, it was, it was great. It was. It, I really cut my teeth. I thought I knew a little bit about film before I started there, maybe sort of four years ago, and uh, sort of fell into working there, as I think a lot of people invariably do. Um, and my boss, Heather Stewart, is a creative director. Uh, and there's no person on the planet that knows more or cares more about film than her. And 
and I very quickly realised I knew nothing about film, and so sort of started to get to know it a little bit over the uh, preceding years. So I kind of, it, I was in sort of programming and stuff, sort of uh, helping, eventually sort of stepped up in sort of programming, helping to arrange sort of film seasons and stuff, and you kind of really need to know your film history. And like my big thing is that to be involved in film production, you really have to know your film history because you can't know anything about you know, what you're trying to do now, if you don't know anything about where you've come from. Uh, and it, you'll find that all of the greatest filmmakers are incredible cinephiles. And I feel now I know a little bit about film. And that, and, and is that what's the, ne the next step in your, um, in your evolution? Is that you, you, you're going to make films? Yeah, well, I have done in the past. I've made shorts that have been shown on festivals and stuff. But I said, oh, I'm going to stop doing that for two years while I do my MA in film. And I'm just working on my dissertation at the moment should be done in so I've got to hand it in in September uh, but I kind of used coming here as a sort of slight sideways move into production uh, and particularly script development my big thing is scripts I love scripts I love the bits of paper and stories and stuff like that and I've been lucky enough to have fallen in with a few of um, people that are letting me look at their bits of paper and helping develop them <laughs> uh, and so that's good but I, you know I still I write and I critique and stuff I've been doing some stuff for the Lumiere Reader who are sort of fantastic um, film and arts uh, online journal uh, and uh, and I've fallen in with the film festival crowd as well which is great because I mean the, B the thing about the BFI is that it's this kind of one-stop shop for so much different stuff. It's the New Zealand Film Commission, it's the Film Archive, it's the Film Festival, it's the you know Paramount Cinema, it's the Embassy Cinema, all wrapped up into one place and everyone kind of knows each other. Uh, and so it's a little bit more disparate here. Um, so you kind of need to get to know people on a different sort of terms. But yeah, I've been lucky enough that I got introduced via Connections in London to meet some great people here. Um, and that's where we're kind of up to this second and yeah. uh, you're talking about uh, critiquing and, and Lumiere reader and we'll provide a link to some of your some of your work uh, in the show notes for the sh for the show but um, you were also writing for sight and sound yeah uh, before you came here I was I was just starting to sort of build up uh, sort of a bit of a sort of reputation well not like reputation but I was doing some stuff and starting to get onward to that but Nick James the editor didn't hugely like my angle of being the New Zealand correspondent <laughs> for Sight <and> Sound. <laughs> he wasn't. He was offering said, we'll a retainer. I said, "We'll get the films sort of. We'll get them twelve hours before the rest of the world." You know. <laughs> um, so I'm still. Yeah, hopefully I'll still be doing some stuff for them because I mean they're great and I think it's one of the great, you know, film journals in the world. So I was incredibly proud to be able to write some reviews and whatnot for them. Film publishing is in. A parlous state at the, at the moment. Um, in the last uh, couple of weeks, the Dissolve website has um, dissolved. Dissolved, yeah, exactly. And you know they had a very uh, particular voice and a particular um, mission, and they weren't able to sustain that. Sight and Sound. I used to be a subscriber to Sight and Sound, mm. uh, but then when I started reviewing, I made a uh, a point to myself that I wouldn't read other people's reviews so i you know it was one of the big sacrifices that mm. i make because i loved sight and sound how is it coping with the, with the all the trend the transitions in film media the um the constant uh buzz around uh being the latest and greatest in terms of the news and the mm. fact that there are 
lots of people, in- intelligent, educated people, able to set up their own websites, yeah. writing similar stuff to that to, to what they're doing. Well, that's the cut. You're- it's the immediacy of it which is i think they suffer from particularly like i mean around festival time so can and you know berlin or whatever people want that kind of you know what film have you seen and what what's it like immediately now please tell me and with a magazine like sight and sound you don't get it for a month afterwards so you know you're reading about films that you've already read about and that you might be thinking oh, and they yeah. might have already opened by, or, by that yeah, yeah exactly that it's that sort of thing um but what they what they do and 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 this is it's the quality of the writing that you're getting the insight that you're getting from the writers that just know film in doubt and they and yeah and they're constantly having to update themselves to be part of the new market um there's a lot of online content now and there's a whole sort of different section for the website but what they do which i think is very very important still is they count themselves as the journal of record so it's every single film that is released in the uk in that month gets a review and that's i think that's really important because uh, what the immediacy thing that we're talking about here is people sort of follow trends and so they just talk about what's popular and what's big so everyone's talking about mission impossible whereas no one's talking about you know this film that some poor first-time filmmaker has poured his heart and soul into making and he is guaranteed a review not necessarily a good one yeah. <laughs> but he's guaranteed a review in the journal of record and i think that's that's something that's perhaps keeping keeping its sort of place of importance in the kind of thing do they still split the plot synopsis and the review yeah, yeah. which i thought it's another really that's neat the hardest thing. bit to write is the synopsis i hate i hated doing that it's very difficult. Is it like a word count that you have to? Yeah. Hit to... yeah. This, well, the the way it works, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I guess I probably am. Uh, so it's three three hundred words if you didn't like the film, seven hundred and fifty if you did, and then if it's a feature piece, it's like twelve hundred and fifty or something like that. Um, so you, you've always got a vested interest in wanting to like the film, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so you get more words, and then you want to try and write the synopsis as concisely as possible so that you oh, know right. <laughs> so you get yeah. more words and you you can bang on about you know whatever you're you know trying to think <laughs> the, a, a peek behind the curtain of sight and sound <laughs> awesome <laughs> kaylee you have been monitoring the mailbag mm. well at least in the last half an hour it's been so there have been times over the last uh couple of weeks where the twitter feed has just been spinning out of control because there have been so many reviews two word reviews uh coming in and that has been the last fortnight Mm. out of control (laughs) (laughs) um start with a really lovely tweet from the lumiere reader thrilled to hear this thoughtful rancho podcast discussion about of the mist among other worthy ends if films so thank you for yeah, giving we, a little we, shout out. Yeah, we, we enjoyed talking about it. That was it uh, with Doug Dilliman um, in the last episode of the show. Mm. Simon Buckenberg, Buckenberg has been doing... Is it, he's ushering because he's a member of the Film Society. Um, and I think he's seen almost every film at NZIF. <laughs> and he sent in two-word reviews for every single one. And they are so good. So I'm just going to choose them at random. Two word review for Experimenter? I would have. <laughs> um, two words for Balak Bayan? Incomparable effort, but I wish I had slept through more than I did. 
and two words for Hauha. Beautiful enigma, a slow burner that asks more than it tells. Bloody brilliant. And he's also been putting his reviews on Letterboxd. So if you... We'll, we'll pop a link up to, yeah. to his uh, Letterboxd profile on the, in the show notes. Mm. Somebody should write that down so I don't forget. <laughs> and of course, it wouldn't be a mailbag without tweets from Fred Thompson, if I can find them. There's so many NZIF ones. Oh, here we go. Uh, two word review for The Assassin, another NZIF one. I'm not... Trying to play with favorites. This is just what's in the mailbag, people. Um, visually breathtaking, beautifully shot, meticulous detailing, though the slow pace isn't for everyone. And two word review for Mission Impossible RN, Rogue Nation. Popcorn thrills. Adrenaline scale is amped up, but the third act finale was weirdly flat. Mm, we're going to come to that in a short while. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I have lost the other one I was going to do. Oh, but there's a great conversation. Sorry, going back to Simon. Um, between Chris Horman and Simon uh, around uh, Catherine oh. Deneuve. <laughs> yeah. Which made me laugh out loud. Catherine Deneuve is uh, a, a a person of singular importance in the life of Chris Horman. Yes. Shall we say? Yes. So Simon's two-word review for Brand New Testament was sacrilegious satire. What would you do if you knew how long you had left? Which I watched this last night and I loved it. Chris followed that with... The two-word reviewer is clearly Deneuve delivers. Simon replied with who? <laughs> Chris replied with, you may find an umbrella up your shareboard if you keep up that sacrilege. So thank you. That was probably the most beautiful exchange I've seen in a long time on Twitter. Indeed. Yes. All right. Um, time to have a look at what people have been going to outside of the uh, film festivals. <laughs> uh, start with New Zealand. <laughs> Yes. In at number five, all the way up from seven, is Inside Out. In at four, down from two, Paper Towns. In at three, staying at number three, Mr. Holmes. Has anyone seen that one? Uh, yep. Um, I got to see that last week. And, and rather than repeat myself, what I'll do is I'll put a, um, a link in the show notes to my Radio New Zealand review, where I did Mr. Holmes and... Oh my God, it was only last week. What did I do? I can't remember... Was it Ant-Man? Maybe it was. Yeah, maybe it was Ant-Man. I can't remember. Anyway, whatever I did last Thursday for Radio New Zealand, um, that'll be the that'll be in there as well. Speaking of Ant-Man, that is in the number two position, down from one, and squeaking its way into the number one position, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Yeah. Well, not really squeaking, it's a lot of money. No, but <laughs> lumbering. In Australia... I don't know why we bothered breaking this up. Oh, I know why. It's because they've got train wreck before uh, we have. So uh, number five in Australia, Magic Mike XXL. Number four, Paper Towns. Train wreck uh, goes in at number three on the strength of previews alone. Mm. Uh, August the 12th is the opening day here in New Zealand. Ant-Man at two. And Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which I still really want to call Rouge Nation. Um, <laughs> uh, that's at number one. In North America, and at number five is Pixels. In at four, now, has anybody been reading, following the the response to Pixels, this, the new Adam Sandler film? Oh, you've been too busy with festival stuff. I've been I too know. busy not caring about Adam Sandler. But no, this film has been absolutely slaughtered. I've never even heard of it. I thought his new one was The Cobbler, and I thought that sounded bad enough. No, that's that. that the Cobbler is his uh, kind of straight acting uh, latest film. This one is his. It's a kind of um, uh, his his comedy entertainment persona. 
Mm. I say persona in inverted commas. Uh, but it's basically, <laughs> imagine if all of the 80s video games gang together and uh, invaded Earth from space. So that's what Pixels is about. And apparently it is diabolical. Mm. Speaking of diabolical, in at four, Minions. In at three, Ant-Man. In, in the number two position, Vacation. Which is a remake, isn't it? Or is it a remake or a reboot of National Lampoon's Vacation from the 80s? Chevy Chase film. Um, I'm going to venture a guess and say it's a remake. Yeah, okay, well, maybe somebody will uh, fill us in there, but uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any plans to release that in New Zealand. I'm not sure if that's on anybody's list. Hmm. And in the number one position, Mission Impossible, Rouge Nation. Uh, and just looking a little bit further down in uh, the US, uh, Southpaw, the new Jake Gyllenhaal film, uh, which lots of people are touting as um, Academy Award fodder. That's, uh, uh, that's on its way. Uh, so oh, look at that. Why do they number this? I have to count one, two, three, four, five, six. Number seven. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I we figure that if we're going to have an an actual English person here, I mean, I'm an actual English person as well, but I've been here a long time, so it's I, I don't really count. We're going to have an actual English person. We'll have the we'll have the UK top five done in a in a you know a proper RP pucker accent yeah <laughs> this is how it's supposed to sound right <laughs> knock yourselves out no it's i mean it's the same isn't it the same the world over number five is minions number four is ant-man um apparently uk us co-production ant-man interesting south pause at number three inside out number two and mission impossible rouge nation number one <laughs> It's it, it's summertime uh, in the northern hemisphere, so yes, all of these things are getting released around around about the same time. I do love the fact that the BFI, when they put their stats out, they don't just do a top ten or whatever. Mm. They they go they look at all of the other like all of the UK produced films, mm -hmm. what their status is, so you can see. Um, I, mean, I mean, presumably it's so that they can all sit around a boardroom table on a Monday morning and go, "We should never have put money into that." Um, yes. <laughs> Can I give a, a special shout out in that, in that instance to The Third Man, uh, number 59. Um, it's re-released because it's Norton Wells. Uh, I think it's his centenary of birth or something like that. Right. Um, which is actually one of the few uh, films on this list that made money, more money in its second week than it did in its first. Well, an an another shout out to the BFI at number 38, uh, is uh, the re-release of Ziga Vertov's Man with the Movie Camera. You, I've got that on my oh, sheet, not, not on, not on yep. yours. Yep. Man with the Movie Camera made five yep. grand. Uh, so, you know, still... Yeah, still the best documentary of all time, bar, bar none. And uh, that's uh, several places, or about 30 places uh, above uh, Dr. Proctor's Fart Powder, which uh, <laughs> was at number 65 and uh, opened... <laughs> Opened last week in the UK to a, uh, just under fifteen hundred pounds, yeah. so uh, no one's no one's retiring on <laughs> Doctor Proctor's fart powder, which is which is written by Joe Nesbo, who wrote Headhunters. Shut the front door. <laughs> so let it be said, or let it not be said, that we are not an educational. Uh, you know, it isn't just about opinions. We're not just making stuff up. We have facts. We do. Sometimes we do have facts. Now it's all about opinions, though, because it's time uh, to check out the Impossible Missions Force. Package is still on that plane. Check down the fuel pump. 
Uh, the mechanicals are locked out. What about the electrical system? Oh, that might work. Uh, no. Hydraulics. Okay, stand by. No, oh, they're encrypted. Benji, the plane! Yes, the package is on the plane! We get it! Can you open the door? I'm by the plane. Benji, can you open the door? Uh, maybe. Open the door when I tell you! just admiring the typo of the week for the script mission impossible yeah. <laughs> rouge, rouge nation it could, mission. Have, it could have easily been minion impossible and then <laughs> they would have made even more money it's probably coming now <laughs> indeed um tom cruise back again for the fifth installment of uh, the mission impossible uh franchise which was in itself back in the day one of the first of the of the television reboots and we uh when we watched it there was a trailer for the man from uncle um playing ahead of it so you know the man from uncles i wonder if those two guys was it henry cavill and um uh, Arnie. Arnie, 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 Army, Army Hammer. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if they're if they're looking at you know the next twenty years of their lives playing the same the same characters over and over again. Is it, was would the man from Uncle have the kind of life that Mission Impossible has had? Um, no, no. Good. I think we can probably shut that part of the conversation down right there with that answer. Um, <laughs> we. I, I was I was hoping that I would be able to see uh, the other four in advance of the screening just to try and get a um, a handle on it. We've watched the, we watched the first two, and the 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 franchise has remained pretty true to itself. I think uh, across multiple directors, Every, you know, the first one was directed by Brian De Palma. Mm. Um, multiple directors, screenwriters, um, Tom Cruise's uh, rising and falling uh, popularity. Um, and did you did you see the last one, the fourth one, uh, which was called Ghost, Ghost Protocol, Protocol mm. as meaningless as all of them? Now, okay, I've got a question for you. Where, what's the story with colons in the title for this? Because Mission Impossible is Mission Colon Impossible, and then you've got your your subtitle. And I noticed they fudged it in the film by putting it underneath in the in the titles. But I, you know. It, as a stickler for this sort of thing, I'd well, like to get it right. It should right. be hyphen. Right. It's mission mission colon hyphen. But, yeah, because that's part of the second part of the sentence, which is the impossible bit. <laughs> <laughs> mission hyphen impossible. No, colon impossible hyphen. Rogue Wait, nation. maybe it should be like mission colon impossible rogue nation. Oh, right. Maybe just like run on. Well, and of course, the, and, and of course, the other the, <laughs> the other gag that everyone's been making about about this, and to, to be to be fair, they acknowledge it in the film itself, is that is that the, the, these missions aren't impossible because they do them, don't they, every single time? Um, who's who wants to put their hand up to try and explain the plot of this one? Unfortunately, I've not seen this. It, it looks really, like it, over it, it, really, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, perhaps contextually, you know, we're going into uncharted territory because uh, 
Oh no, actually, that did it happen in the exactly first film. It seems exactly the same as and the one before. They're they're always being disavowed, aren't they? Right? They're always one one way or another. The um they they're doing something that gets them into trouble. Uh, they're being disavowed, and in in this case, they're actually be the uh, Ethan Hunt at least, and then Simon Pegg, whose character Benji. Uh, they, they end up being chased by the CIA because uh, the CIA thinks that they've basically uh, um, they, they, they've gone beyond the boundaries. Not that there are boundaries for the Impossible Mission Force or whatever it is, but um, you know. Anyway, they, they've they've they they want to be they want to call them in for a disciplinary meeting uh, where they're going to get. You know they're going to get told off, and Ethan Hunt uh, disappears to go and carry on crime fighting on his own. Well, they think that he's made up this idea of Spectre. Oh no, sorry, hang on, Syndicate. Yeah, got that one wrong by mistake. <laughs> um, and he it turns out he hasn't made it up. Right. And then they. I don't want to give away the ending. No. See, when it, but, see whenever they said the word Syndicate. All I could think of was like a bunch of people who get get together to buy a lotto ticket every <laughs> every month, and I was like, "What's wrong with that?" You know, and they don't really explain what the syndicate as long as they've all up ag- to. As either. long as they've all agreed how to split the prize up at the end, surely that's you know it's fine. Um, but it, it it does get quite dense, and of course, you know, as uh, as the nature of these things, when you when you deal with conspiracy, the question is how high does it go, and the answer is pretty high um but the the point of these things isn't isn't the plot it's about the relationships between the characters and getting to know those people once again and wondering which ones are going to come back from from previous films uh, and then the giant set pieces and to to the credit of uh of this production they have gone out of their way to sell what seems like the biggest stunt that a movie star has ever done, which is the hanging off the edge mm. of a plane taking off. And that's not even like in the film properly. That's, that's like the pre-credit sequence. So you're thinking, holy cow, that's how, how are they going to top that for the next two hours? And they get pretty close, don't they? Yeah. It's, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it to be honest. I, I'm a stickler for this type of, you know, this stuff, but I, I, I guess the point is that it's kind of, the, the franchise has been going on for long enough now that it's just Tom Cruise has become synonymous enough with it that the series itself is just, you know, totally ubiquitous and it doesn't matter who directs it. It doesn't matter who writes it. It doesn't really matter who's in it. You know exactly what you're going to get. Um, and you do, and they deliver. And as you say, he does do his own stunts. He's the producer as well. So he, they don't have the same problems with insurance that they might do with, um, you know, with other films and stuff. And so, yeah. And, and the hanging off the plane bit was Pretty good fun. He to looked be genuinely terrified, didn't he? I I think he was probably more worried about how his hair looked than the ground beneath him. <laughs> oh no, fair, fair comment because his hair does actually look quite good all the way through. All the way through. Everybody's hair looks pretty good. Uh, it does that really annoying thing though, where it's like there's a secret base um, in London, and obviously the best place to put a secret base in London is in the middle of Piccadilly Circus. You know, one of the most visited places on the planet. Hide in, <laughs> hide in plain sight. That's, oh, maybe, that's, that's the way they the, the way they put it. Um, <clears throat> but there's, you know, in the last film, I seem to remember thinking uh, when Cruz was standing uh, shirtless at the top of the Kremlin, thinking. 
Oh, you've seen better days, haven't you? <laughs> you you know, you're really looking your age. You know, I maybe for the next few films, don't take your shirt off. But I think that he saw it and went, I can do better than that. <laughs> and therefore, he looks great. Yeah. You know, like he's pumped up. He's, and, he's a bit, there's something quite Dorian Gray, isn't there? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, I mean, thing. admittedly, sometimes he he actually does look like the Tom Cruise masks that the villains usually wear in in these films. But, you know, I think full, full credit to him. And it certainly looked like he was riding that motorbike through most of it. Uh, yeah. And I guess the other thing I wanted to say about this is that um, it's the only kind of franchise left, it feels, that is star-led. Mm. It's, he, he, it's him, isn't it? It's Tom Cruise. All of the other huge blockbusters in the world are all... You know, sort of Marvel films oh, or whatever, replaceable, and they're not, aren't they? Yeah, and it doesn't really matter who's in it, except they. I mean, obviously they made them big stars, but they're not the main mm. selling point of it. Marvel is. In fact, the whole point, characters. the whole point of Ant Man, like the the only reason Ant Man exists, is simply to introduce new Avengers characters so that we won't be too disappointed when mm. um, <laughs> we don't get Robert Downey Jr. because they couldn't afford him, and you know, it's the. the it's got no serves no other purpose um yes you're right this is when cruise decides to to give it away what who else would they would they, would they hand it well, over i mean this is the point i'm wondering whether it's we're in a kind of early 70s sean connery bond moment mm. you know because he he did bond for i don't know what six films or something like that mm. and then sort of decided to give it up because he felt like he was too old sort of ironically enough when roger moore took over he was actually older than sean connery was <laughs> which i think is great uh but then it's still the the, the franchise survived and obviously survives to today do we think that could be could be now it doesn't feel like it could it feels no, like it's no. too much about tom cruise I, for I, it to survive i think i think you're right but i i also think that he's going to be like winston peters and he's just going to go on and on and on until you know until he falls off one of those planes one day i don't know i i read a great story uh my favorite tom cruise story actually it was uh it was in uh this is a kind of a mangled way of introducing it but i was reading an interview with uh george clooney in esquire magazine and he was telling a story about having a dinner with matt damon this is what film stars do right is that they have dinners with each other and matt damon was telling a story at that dinner about um hanging out with tom cruise around just after the time of uh, ghost protocol and cruise was suitably um uh stern and focused in in in, in that meeting and uh, or uh, you know with that occasion and said to to matt damon said you know the stunt coordinator on on my film he he wouldn't let me hang out of that of that window in um abu dhabi is it abu dhabi dubai the tallest one the burj khalifa mm. yeah you know like hang yes. he said he would he he didn't want me to hang out that window and matt said so well what did you do he said, I fired his ass. <laughs> so it's like, man, it's like, no, I'm the executive. There's no reason why I'm the executive producer is that I get to do this nonsense. Um, we, we, we really enjoyed it. We took the whole family to, to this one. And this was uh, Sebastian's first Mission Impossible. Mm. And he hadn't seen any of the TV shows. He would vague sort of genetic sense memory of the, <laughs> uh, of the, of the theme tune. <laughs> 
um, and had a and he had he had a ball. He really enjoyed it. it it's uh, it was probably a little bit too violent in the beginning for a twelve year old. I felt like it. There's, you know, I wonder whether this is a, as a franchise. Like as we were watching, we watched the first two recently, and they're quite violent. Um, was one of the things that I do love about this series is that the violence isn't necessarily how the problems get solved. You know, like it isn't just about machismo and I can punch harder than you and all that sort of stuff. There is, there's an, an, a necessity for all of that in the action scenes, but there's also teamwork and strategy and problem solving and analysis and mad computer hacking skills and all of the other stuff. So, you know, it's actually quite a good balanced sort of bunch of messages going on there. And it's not, it's bonkers, but it's not supernatural bonkers. So yeah, I we we, we really enjoyed it, and uh, I don't think there was anything, you know, there was I don't think there were any m subliminal messages there that we wouldn't want our young people, our young folk, to um, to, to receive. Um, two words. I've been I've been I, I should have prepared a little a little bit earlier, but I've been trying to work come out come up with two words, and I'm really struggling. Must admit, uh, too ridiculous. Um. No, that's not. No, I'm going to use. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to use cruise control, which is probably. Oh dear. <laughs> which is such a lame. Can't we call it Rouge Nation? Can't yeah. we the two? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, a message to uh, to 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 Reese Pie in England, who controls our um, letterbox profile. Those are you. Those are your two words. You don't have to harass us <laughs> to fill in the gaps later on. All right. Festival highlights. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've all seen way too many movies to be able to pick them all apart. Um, has anybody got a, you've got a couple there that you want to highlight mm. from of your experiences? Maybe stuff that um, hasn't been on people's radar. It's been very, very gratifying to see how many different films people have been watching mm. um, this festival. Um, I've, I've done a, a couple of uh, panel discussions with some filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, uh, so for, and I've not hugely been involved in documentary before, uh, so it's been quite an interesting change of uh, direction for me. Uh, and so I've had to really kind of really study these guys' films to, uh, to talk to them. And I, I think probably from a couple of the smaller films that I'd personally like to highlight are um, uh, this beautiful film called The Silences by Margot Nash, which is one of those films that's just specifically about her and her family and growing up, which is in, invariably very a dangerous topic to cover in a feature film because uh, you, you can slip quite easily into the realms of um, uh, self-indulgence, I guess. Um, but she just manages to pull it off this incredibly interesting and very sad, poignant story about her own family. And she's an incredible woman as well. Um, so I did an intro and a Q&A for her as well. And people were asking, they were fascinated by this film. They were asking lots and lots of questions. Um, and in the same vein, I did a, a Q&A uh, for, and, and she was on the panel as well, Sumner Bernstein, who's uh, made this film called Some Kind of Love with her husband, Thomas Bernstein, uh, which is about this um, an artist called Yolanda or something or other, who uh, was at the end of her life sort of suffering uh, in the early stages of dementia. Uh, and her brother moves into her house in London to look after her. And it's just about the sort of weird relationship that they have, which is based more upon, they sort of fight like cat and dog, you know, but you sort of think, 
it's it's based more upon duty than anything else and he keeps saying this and it's 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 incredibly before again he he the filmmaker finds his own sense of self through the sort of the journey that he takes on the film so it's this voyage of self-discovery and you get the feeling with both of those that before they set out they had no idea what film they were making there was no script there was just nothing they just walked into the room and started in day one and then it came alive in the in the edit room which is it's great it's it's kind of it's called direct cinema they went sort of went made stuff like that and and then back in the 50s and Jean Rouge did it in Paris and sort of cinema verite in the 60s and um uh and it's I think it's a really beautiful way to create things so it's it, and that's what's so great I think about a festival like the New Zealand International Film Festival is it does manage to give a lot of these filmmakers the kind of exposure and put their films in front of audiences that they wouldn't necessarily normally normally get. Um, and they get feedback. Yeah, well. and it's that direct relationship yeah. with the audience. And they and that's what they were saying on the on the panel discussions I was doing is uh, you know when when is your film complete? I think was one of the questions I asked, and they sort of universally acknowledged it's when when it is in front of the audience and then the audience reacts to it because it's film is about it's not you know it's not for you necessarily it's you're putting it out there for other people to see it and so therefore it's only complete when the audience actually sees it and that was really powerful um because uh a lot of the other stuff like i worked at london film festival a lot but you know the things we were sort of dealing with there are sort of big major level sort of blockbusters you get a lot of this stuff as well but i think it's really nice to see to give exposure to and particularly to the local community as well you know i've got to highlight obviously tim wong's film out of the mist that was a real sort of voyage of discovery for me as fairly new person to the scene uh in new zealand that sort of gives this incredibly comprehensive and intelligent review of uh uh the alternative new zealand cinema so that was that's a really beautiful film so yeah which he, he spends quite a lot of time debunking theories that you probably weren't I mean, as a as as a newcomer, probably weren't all that aware of to begin with. So did, did it make did it make enough sense? Yeah, and I kind of knew already know a few of the people that um, if if they weren't the actual filmmakers were involved in making some of those films, which is a really nice position to be in. But it's it's always really nice when you have these things. This is why I think film education is so important: is you actually have these things laid out in a kind of linear. This influenced this, and this influenced this, and this is why this happened. And you put it in a kind of social historical context, and then you start to understand why film is such an important medium. And it's not just escapism; it's not a silly job. You know, it's film is important, and it has a vital role to play in uh, in society in general. You know, um, so that's really good. But my personal favourite film of the festival has been Amy, <laughs> which right. is like partly because I loved Amy Winehouse. Uh, and partly because it made me quite nostalgic for London in a lot of ways, which I haven't felt since I've been here. But she's so synonymous with London. She's so mixed up with that thing. And you sort of just, everything you look at, it was just this sort of beautiful journey. And it was, I expected to sort of think, oh, I know all this. I know this already. I've seen, I've lived this. I lived it out. But when you see it in one place, you have a real emotional reaction to it, which you hadn't anticipated before you walked into the cinema. Um, it's something that that, that, that director, um, Asif Kapadia, it seems to have this incredible skill at mm. doing because Senna was an incredibly tense film and yet we all knew how it was going to end mm. and yet how do you keep people on the edge of their seat when when the conclusion is already sort of foretold um, you know we know what's going to happen to Amy that's the that's the point but somehow yeah I mean I haven't seen it I'm waiting to see it this it's, weekend it's, well what it exposes I think quite sort of poignantly is the the why and the how how it kind of happened 
because um, we sort of get this impression that she was just this incredibly ridiculously um, over-the-top girl who just indulged in everything that was put in front of her. And in a lot of ways, that was true. Um, but, you know, the, the history's peppered with these kind of um, characters who constantly push the barrier too far. But the, I think the difference between artists and perhaps, you know, real people, if you want to use that kind of phrase, which I know is a bit ridiculous, is that we have the boundaries that, that they don't have. We have to get up and go to the office, you know, between nine and five. Whereas in this film, her two best friends on discovering that they that she's got mixed up in heroin try to get her to, to do it. And they actually go and steal her passport to stop her from going to America. And her manager stops them and they're pleading with him and he says look don't you know how many people in the world can function whilst using heroin and you go she's doomed mm. <laughs> she's totally doomed she's surrounded by the people that wants to keep this gravy train going because she's so talented you know um and it's it's such a shame and that's when it suddenly becomes this incredibly sad um journey you know kaylee what have you been watching I made my Can list. you remember? <laughs> I, well, yes, I, had, I did make a list. Um, <laughs> definitely the best films I have seen at the festival so far are Girlhood, which was one of those films that was exactly as good as I thought it would be. Like, I had very high expectations and I was totally rewarded. Uh, Mustang, which was just incredible. Um, and Tehran Taxi, which I watched last night and just, it was, it was so good. So good. Um, and also, Listen to Me, Marlon was a big surprise for me. Yeah, it's good. It was it? stunning. Like, I didn't know. I mean, watching the trailer, you don't really know how it's going to play out and how they're going to use these tapes that they found. But it's absolutely stunning the way they've put it together. It was just, oh, it's just so, it was so good. And again, so tragic. And you know how it ends. And it's, it's not a happy ending, but it's, but it's it, 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 it humanizes somebody who was a cliche or became a cliche yeah. a tabloid yeah. cliche as well and and i you know you you can never hear that story enough that these people that that we're laughing at whether it's uh amy winehouse drunk outside her front door yelling at the paparazzi or uh or marlon brando or whoever that they're all real people you know mm. that that they you know it, it's just so easy to I don't know. It's just it's a banal statement, isn't it? To just it, that it's easy to forget that stuff. Um, I really liked um, listen to me Marlon too, but I, mm. you know I've always been a fan, and I I, I've re I read his autobiography, which is you know it, uh, a, a much more obfuscating uh, exercise. You know, like it was done for money when he was really short. After uh, uh, he needed to pay lawyers for all of the court cases that he was involved in, um, and he. Whereas the tapes, the tapes are just him. That's just they're just him talking to himself. You know, um, yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, thing. it was like it was. Some of the tapes are, you know, him him sort of doing a, a sort of whatever is on his mind, and others were like the self self hypnosis self hypnosis yeah, tapes, yeah. which were brilliant, and it was it was so good. Of course, it's he's. It's so beautiful to watch on screen. Like, you know, there's all these clips and all this footage of him and these photos. And he, yeah, like even even as he got older, he was still a very like beautiful person. Like you could still see the, you know, the original super handsome like, nineteen year old version of him. That's but, right. Yeah. And and if you, and you look at the, the the photos before he got his nose broken, his he he 
he broke his nose sparring backstage at the theater while they were uh, performing streetcar named desire on broadway and you know what a colossally stupid thing to do that is but you know that's that was that was brando um my two that i want to highlight are um uh, 10,000 Years Later, which is the Chinese 3D uh, animation. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the main reason that it features in the festival here is that it's a New Zealand co-production mm-hmm. and that uh, New Zealand uh, te- technology provided the sound uh, sound design for it, John Mackay. Um, and uh, again, we went to that as a family and it's demented. It's completely like I, I use the word bonkers a lot, and I, I don't even think that covers what this film is about. <laughs> it just kept getting stranger and stranger and stranger to the extent where on the way home we were talking about, and what about the bit where the um, the roosters with the bodies of dogs came out to attack the. You know, and we're going, oh, yeah, that's right. And that was just like one moment of complete strangeness. If It was like, I don't know how many drugs filmmakers in China are allowed to take, but this dude has taken some seriously good ones. Because There's some amazing, like, surreal comedies this year. Mm. You know, it's just like... Lobster. Yeah, Brand yeah. New Testament, which I watched last night, which was hilarious. Oh, so good. So yeah. bizarre and so brilliant and last night i watched el cinco Hmm? which i chose based on the uh the festival blurb because i uh spent a few days in argentina uh this year and watched a football match and now really keen on argentinian football and this is a film about an argentinian footballer so it's like (laughs) boom um and you know it's 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 not a. It's not one of those highlight films. It's not a tentpole film in the festival, but it was enormously satisfying. It's a really, really sweet story about a, um, a, a kind of second division Argentinian footballer at the end of his career, uh, trying to work out what he's going to do next, and his long-suffering, sensible, sane, beautiful wife trying to guide him in the right direction and help him out and you know without without ever giving up on him you know even though he didn't finish high school and he has to go back and complete his high school diploma and stuff like that and it was it was lovely it was a, and it was a beautiful relationship between these two you really you know loved spending time with them even though he was incredibly frustrating and he was she was incredibly forgiving it was yeah terrific el cinco was one of the ones that i'm yeah super glad that i i got to see another cinema shooting in the united states this week sadly this time the people shooting were cops who killed a reportedly mentally disturbed man who had attacked an audience at the antioch tennessee's multiplex with pepper spray and a hatchet people need to just stop doing this Meanwhile, a recent survey shows that U.S. audiences would feel safer if there were metal detectors in movie theaters, but don't want ticket prices to go up to pay for them. This is really... This, that's this, a, bit, that, that's this, a Du Bear's crap in the woods <laughs> question, isn't it, really? This is so upsetting to me that it's like... Because I grew up going to the cinema. Like, I would go to the cinema every weekend. You know, it's like sometimes during the week, you know, after school. It's 
and just th- th- to think of the cinema as somewhere that's unsafe and it's basically you know you're trapped with these people it's just horrible and i find it very very upsetting having to read these stories and it's like just stop mm. just stop like stop killing each other please just tone it the hell down stop it please well said <laughs> in in other news we didn't put it in the uh, on, on the script but we got a press release this afternoon you would have well i say we got it mm. Rancho Notorious got it. Yeah. Um, you would have been on the other side of of, yeah. of, of that at the New Zealand International Film Festival. Um, the Wellington, uh, the announcement of a whole raft of extra screenings because of so many sold out screenings, and the announcement that uh, the Wellington leg of the film festival has already cracked sixty five thousand uh, attendees four days before the end of the festival, and sixty five thousand was what we got to last year. So. It, it you know what we've been feeling and sensing around the traps going from venue to venue that it has been an outstandingly successful festival um is now proven with the with the numbers mm. how has it felt at at festival central great i mean the definitely the social media buzz this year has been like 99 percent positive it's been great just to have people tweeting that they're really excited about things they're going to things and that they're just happy it doesn't seem like there's people who are coming out of anything really angry that they've been misled about (laughs) it's like no people just really you know really love it and i think the most surprising thing has been the peggy guggenheim sessions in auckland auckland and wellington like that we did not expect that to just go gangbusters like we cannot program enough sessions of this documentary um there are more coming. There's lots of extra sessions coming up in Wellington. We're actually running into Thursday next week. Plus there's plus there's another one the, on the Sunday, the 16th, um, at Lighthouse Batoni. So there's there's a lot there. There's a lot there. There's more coming. So the festival's just rolling on forever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of festival. Yeah. yeah. From where, like where I come from, London is 10 days long, and it's very, very intense for a very short period of time. This is like, it feels like it's been going on for a month already. Yeah, and for those of us who work at NZIF, it keeps going, because it's 13, yeah. 13 cities, you know? It's... I was reading about uh, Locarno today, and the, which is the Swiss uh, festival, where the centerpiece screenings every night are in the town square with the with the lake in the background and it's all beautiful and starlit and magnificent <laughs> and that's happening uh, very soon and uh but i was surprised that that festival is around about 179 oh that's pretty exact isn't it 179 <laughs> titles um which is not that much bigger like wellington and well and auckland ends if as a as a whole is a big festival on in ter- in world terms in terms of the just the sheer number of choices that you have yep true story (laughs) all right right. (laughs) it's great it means i get to see the assassin next week because there's they're adding on more screenings which i'm very excited about Mm, yes and the arabian nights trilogy kicks off on monday so it's like we there was already three guaranteed extra days before the festival even started (laughs) so it's it's great all right, time to get back into um, the the grubby world of commercial cinema uh, and find out what Woody Allen has made this year. Professor Lucas, welcome to Braylon. Thank you. It's so good to have you here. Your paper was quite good. Am I blushing right now? He's very radical, very original. You either love him or hate him, really. When I heard you were coming here, we had fantasies that we'd meet something special would happen. I haven't been able to perform in nearly a year. I can't write, I can't breathe. 
I couldn't remember the reason for living, and when I did, it wasn't convincing. Word around is your philosophy professor's got a bit of an alcohol problem. Oh boy, that's just one of his problems. I just hope you're not starting to care for him too much in the wrong way. Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone star in the new Woody Allen film. It's called Irrational Man. Uh, in, in, in recent years, uh, Woody Allen has, you know, he left New York, which is where all of his films had been uh, set, and started globe trotting. He went to Barcelona and London and uh, Rome. Uh, and this film is set in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, which is a very different environment for that you would expect a Woody Allen film to, mm. to be. Not that we, we you can predict these things anymore. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix plays a, uh, a a depressed philosophy professor who's just started work at the local university. He's got uh, a very uh, Dan Slevin-esque tummy, uh, and uh, which I. I'm sure he actually got to take off at the end of each day, <laughs> which I would, I would love to do. Um, but uh, and he's you know he carries a hip flask around with him, and he's basically uh, suffering from this existential angst. I feel like um, that's just Joaquin Phoenix like every day. Yeah, yeah, and uh, maybe not with the depressed part, but the existential. Yeah, definitely, media. definitely struggling with all of the you know with with all of the stuff that life throws at him. And, you know, what's it all about? What's it for? What am I for? Um, and he strikes up a friendship with one of his students, played by Emma Stone. This is a classic uh, Woody Allen, uh, I was going to say May to December romance. It's more like January to December, isn't it, nowadays? Uh, and um, she, they, they overhear a conversation in a diner which prompts him to... Uh, to change his life he basically decides he's going to m murder a bad judge and th he does so i don't think that's a twist i don't think that's a spoiler in any way shape or form i think that's pretty much part of the what the story is about and uh, so the question is you know once he's rediscovered his lust for life by taking definitive action instead of just standing in front of a bunch of students waffling on about Kierkegaard, he he you know he decides that he loves life again and he rediscovers his mojo and his uh, joie de vivre. Uh, and um, but of course you know he's done a really bad thing and that's going to end badly for for a few people I would imagine. Now. Am I the only person that's seen this film? Tom, did you get to see this I, as part of I, your research for no, the podcast didn't even, today? didn't even know it, it existed, right. I'm afraid. Sorry. And you have... <clears> well, I have an interesting relationship with Woody Allen, and, and he's, I think he's sort of been making the same film for, you know, 40 years or whatever it is. I, I happen to quite like that film, but um, at the last few years, Blue Valentine, Blue Jasmine aside, I think has been a has been an excellent period. Well, I think part of the problem is is, and I found this with uh, with Blue Jasmine, is that he, I mean, he's when he casts really well, hmm. the actors give him so much, and they become watchable. Like Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine was incredibly watchable. Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone. Emma Stone, I don't think, has actually been better than in this you know there's an intent they both bring an intensity which is very watchable the problem is is that they're they're having to say dialogue that no real life human being would ever speak and i wonder whether 
Woody Allen actually gets to hang out with real people enough anymore to be able to soak up the the way you know I just don't think he's connected enough to the world anymore in order to be able to reflect it back to us that's you know but the, the dialogue is just dreary and this this is not one of his funny films right so he you know he can still write a, a, a gag when necessary but this is a little bit more intense and the the observations about life and philosophy and existentialism it's all pretty banal mm. you know like the insights are not spectacular insights and you know for all of the hard work that the people in front of the camera are putting in the problem this film has and it's a crushing problem is that it's really dull i think that's kind of joaquin phoenix's problem as well is that he seems to have suffered recent in recent years from the weight of his own worthiness he sort of seems to be disappearing into that i haven't actually seen inherent vice yet but i imagine it's a bit like that and um the master i didn't even rate that much either unfortunately which i think i was so looking forward to the master oh i liked it and i didn't think he quite worked in that i think he's just he, he's a little bit too self-important you know i'm very important look at me mm. um what was the one he did where it turned out it was all the sort of art project and he sort of disappeared off and said, I'm reinventing myself yeah, as a not, rapper. I'm not me. Yeah, I'm not there. No, I'm not here. I'm not here. Something well, like that. I'm not, I'm not working. Yeah. And it turned out it was just this big sort of, and I just thought, oh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, 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 it's plausible that, that, that things for him have gone off the rails a little bit uh, since then uh, in terms I'm, of his persona. I'm looking forward to his bio doc because <laughs> i think he's been through some stuff in his life yeah like yeah i mean not just his his brother dying <clears throat> but like i think he's like he's had a bit of a rough time and i really enjoy seeing him on the screen but i, I feel like he's one of those artists that like old school artists who's like they're really suffering for their art Torture. In a yeah, way. It, yeah, it's yeah. Like, but it's not you but know. then it can, can become quite pretentious when you're probably mm. really quite rich and you live in a really nice house <laughs> yeah. and you have personal trainers and all this type yeah. of stuff then it's just a bit like you know you're not living on the street are you and it's yeah. but they, he did have absolutely fascinating childhood you know the whole family did um, you know, sort of with these incredibly weird hippie parents. That he was he was called Leaf, around. wasn't he, when he was born? Don't no, he was he was, was born Wahim, and oh, then right. he changed his name to Leaf because it, he thought it'd be more acceptable in Hollywood. And then he changed it back to Wahim when Re River died. Like right. if you look at his really early performances, Parenthood, his his first film, and he's um, credited as Leaf in that right. because he didn't think, and quite correctly, that anyone would be able to spell Wahim or pronounce it. <laughs> but it was a tribute to his brother that he turned it back. And, um, and then he kind of had the career that his brother might have had mm. had he not died, you know, which is yeah. quite interesting. Yeah. I, I really, I'd, I'd love for somebody to... Uh, cast him in a in a broad comedy like a real because I get the feeling he's got the chops for it he's got the skills um, but yes he seems to be you know be going in the direction of these tortured intense uh, people and it's um, yeah it's it's hard work he he does really good work as does Emma Stone in uh, in this as does Parker Posey in this but you know you just don't believe no matter how hard they're working that you're actually looking at real human beings mm. that's, interacting. I mean, that's Woody Allen all over though isn't it yeah it's, he's not really a real human being this is true <laughs> this is true and uh, but 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 maybe as time's gone by his he's he's hasn't he his ability to fake it 
has been um well it perhaps it's not just that but it's it's does anyone care any longer perhaps the world's moved on and what was quite cool and trendy you know 20 or 30 years ago is actually becoming a little bit mm. you know past it now there's you know because his 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 legend lives on a hell of a lot and his influence lies on another whole generation of filmmakers who are taking what he started and moving the argument on you know i think automatically of noah bumbach who sort of basically seems to be the heir to woody allen's throne most recently and his films are kind of interesting there is sort of a bit of a mixed bag but um he i think he's doing some interesting work and making it more current whereas mm. i think woody allen's just sort of it's just constant vanity projects now you know one well after the it's other. it's also uh there's a very depressing interview with woody allen uh that npr did we'll put a link to that in the in the show notes where basically he says you know he's 79 years old now he's still making a film a year he's he'd like to think that he's still got great work in him but he doesn't really think he does and he looks back on his old his his past works and he all he can see is the faults in it he's it's a very depressing sort of self-assessment of a of somebody who um whose heart doesn't appear to be in it anymore like it's his job and it sustains a lifestyle and he likes going to work but he doesn't really want to be on the set past three o'clock in the afternoon and monday night is jazz night so he's going to be you know he's got to go off and do and do that and he 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 makes no claims whatsoever to any kind of quality of anything that he's done and it's it's almost as if there's no confidence left it, this is just i mean the, the other thing you've got to remember about that is that it's it's a very difficult job to give up being a film director and in the same way that it kind of like uh, you know as a painter like the impressionist painters were still like renoir was still painting with the bandages famously sort of still strapped to his hand it's Apparently it's not actually true, but it's it's the kind of, you know, the idea of it he's still doing it in his 80s when he mm. couldn't walk. But just because they have to and they have to do it and they're always only ever going to be judged by their last project. And I remember talking to Stephen Frears about this before I left, just to sort of do a little name drop. There. Sure. <laughs> You're welcome. And before Philomena came out, he was saying that it's, you know, he's in his early 70s and it's just he he wanted to do another. He hadn't felt like he hadn't done a good film since The Queen. But then not a good film in that it wasn't accepted by its public popularity wise and and so just you know one more and then that's it and uh, and then Philomena came out and it was this huge success and he was like well that was a success so I might as well do another one you know <laughs> sort of thing and Ken Loach is the same Ken Loach said he was going to never make another film after Jimmy's Hall that was mm, going to be it because the right. guy's 80 years old or whatever and it's like this is the huge undertaking that it takes and so he finishes it and it becomes a sort of relative success and he goes oh i might do another one you know it's just that's what they do they're just gonna be living it until then eventually one day they collapse on set you know with a clapperboard in the hands and that's kind of it you know? <laughs> and, and of course you know, the clapperboard <laughs> scares them and they have a heart attack yeah, there you go well that's it and there of course there are some directors that you that you wish had gone on even even longer and some that um yeah, that, that outstayed, outstayed their welcome. Talking of outstaying welcomes, I'm going to sum uh, that w w Woody Allen irrational man up with two words, and that is retire, Woody. <laughs> um, and it brings us to the end of another episode. That's our show. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode uh, and you're still listening, you can subscribe to us at funeralsandsnakes.net forward slash Rancho Notorious, where you'll find ways to communicate with us via email. Don't get much email. We get an enormous amount of spam. <laughs> I, I set that email address up, but I didn't use uh, I didn't use Gmail. <sighs> and 
40 spam emails a day i'm deleting boom 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 out they go so please send us an email so that when i so that when i you know i I get one from a real human being it warms the cockles of my heart Uh, and you can comment on the website too yes um you can also find us on twitter our twitter handle as usual as i say every week is rancho podcast that's r-a-n-c-h-o podcast all one word um and you can also find us on letterbox where the lovely reesey pie takes care of our two word reviews and more our username is rancho notorious this show is a Funerals and Snakes production. Season 3 is executive produced by Robert Cato, Random Films, Claire Quere, Mark Cuby, Anthony S. Pratt, Fred Thompson, and Matthew Buchanan. The theme music is Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly by Los Plantronics. You can buy that at the iTunes store. And we're going to play you out with some more music. Uh, this is from the uh, new soundtrack to Rouge Nation, uh, Mission Impossible. Oh, look, it's got a dash. Yes, well, that's obviously the canonical... Um, uh, presentation um yeah the looking at uh, the album on itunes i would say finale and curtain call would probably be the track that we'll choose that seems to have the highest rating so um that's playing out underneath us as we disappear thanks very much to tom webb for visiting us here at rancho notorious thank you sorry that your festival commitments mean you can't stay for dinner but that means all the more for the rest of us uh, thanks to Kaylee. Big thanks to my swell partner Karen, who makes sure that everyone who visits us here at Rancho Notorious is uh, well watered, at least, uh, and some of us well fed. To Sebastian, who's our sous chef, you might be able to hear him bouncing around outside, um, and of course Arthur, uh, our mascot. Um, thanks to you all for listening. That's good evening from me, Dan Slevin. And good evening from me, Kaylee. <laughs>